0: let's get into the word. Um, Luke, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11 is where we'll start. We're looking at two scriptures today. And Like all these subjects we're talking about in this series, some more than others, this is going to be difficult, uncomfortable at times. Uh, As as I say every week, especially in this series, if you disagree with something I say, you think I've handled the word incorrectly, please email me, text me, come see me. We need to talk through that. if you're a parent and you have a, a child or a teenager in here that's hearing this message, make sure you debrief with them and, and make sure they understood what this was about and, and that they got everything out of the message. That means you've got to get everything out of the message, which means, mom or dad, you've got to stay awake, so it's on you. So, um, yeah, I'm looking at you. So, this subject today is going to be especially difficult to talk about and to hear about and to work through very strong feelings on this subject of sexuality, very, very personal issues for people, including people in this room that I don't even know about, that you don't know about, people who are struggling with things that they don't feel comfortable sharing, people who have members of their family, that this is a real pressing issue in their family and their friend group, and how do I respond? And so I need to be sure, and this is true every week, but especially this week, I need to be sure that everything that I say is full of biblical clarity. In other words, you don't have any doubt when you leave here what the Bible says, but also biblical compassion. Because I, my goal, I hope, and my prayer is that everybody in this room, when they leave here today will know, everybody who hears this message online, they'll know God loves me. God is on my side. God has my best at heart. I matter to Him. This issue is important because you may, if you're younger than me, you may not be aware of this because you didn't grow up in the world I'm about to describe. But for most of us, we grew up in a world where there was a broad cultural consensus on sexual ethics and that doesn't mean that everybody lived up to them, obviously not. It doesn't mean that everybody necessarily agreed 100%. But broadly speaking, there was, a, there was a cultural consensus, whether you were Christian or Jewish or Muslim or irreligious or anything in between, you just basically knew, societally speaking, there were certain things regarding gender, regarding sexuality that were considered true, that were considered right. And if you went against those standards, it wasn't going to be good for you. It wasn't going to be good for society. And so it was good that we held to these things together. And that cultural consensus that lasted for hundreds of years is gone. I want you to know that. And it's been gone for quite a while. In fact, uh, in 2015, June of 2015, when the Supreme Court handed down their ruling that made same-sex marriage legal in all 50 states, if that surprised you, if the response of most people that, that basically said, yes, that needed to happen, if that surprised you, you haven't been paying attention to the direction that our culture's been going for at least the past 50 years. And it leaves us, as, as people who consider ourselves people of the book, evangelical believers in Christ who try to, try to base our, our faith, our practice and faith on the Word of God, that leaves us in a difficult position. Because we like to see ourselves as people who stand for truth, who are, who are upholding the right values, and yet more and more our, the culture around us doesn't see us that way anymore. Whereas before there was this idea, well, I may not be a Christian, I may not like church people, but at least they are on the side of good. But now we're seen as being on the side of stubbornness, ignorance, lack of progress, that society is moving in a certain direction or that they see as very progressive, and we're standing in the way of that. And that's not a position many of us feel comfortable being in. Being socially ostracized is not comfortable for anybody. If you enjoy that, I, I don't know what's wrong with you actually. That's that's not a comfortable position to be in. So where does that leave us? What should we do? There are people who would say, among Christians, they would say, well, maybe we've been wrong about those standards that we set for all these hundreds of years. I mean, the church has been wrong before, right? Look at the Middle Ages when, when church leaders said that the, the sun revolves around the earth instead of the opposite, and the, and the earth is the center of the universe, and now we know that's false. Or in the in the 1800s, when many Christians, many in this part of the world especially, believed that, that slavery was endorsed by Scripture, and, and we stood for that, and we were, totally wrong. That was evil. And well, maybe we're wrong about this too. But even if we're right about this, I think we can all agree that being right isn't all it takes to represent God well. I mean, our our series is about being citizens of heaven and the issues that divide. It's not enough just to be on the right side. It's how you represent Christ in those issues. When Jesus was here in the flesh, there was a group of people who Outside of Jesus, they were uh, but more than anybody else, they knew the Word of God and they lived by the Word of God, and yet those were the people who wanted Jesus dead more than anybody else. So it's not enough just to be right. So our question that we're going to ask today is, what does the Bible tell us about living for Christ in a time when our culture standards for sexuality have shifted? When we're no longer seen as the moral people, but as the oppressive people? What, what should be our response? And, and, and we're specifically going to look at this issue of homosexuality. There's so many issues. And when you talk about sexuality, there's gender issues, there's, there's premarital sex, there's, there's so much. And, and if you want to talk to me privately about the other parts, that's fine. I, I just choose to focus on this one uh, because it's, it's the issue of such division today. And, and as I look at Scripture, I see two commands for us, two imperatives. Number one, I see seek and hold on to biblical truth. We've got to seek and hold on to biblical truth, and I say that specifically, very, very uh, specifically that way because when I say seek, it means don't think you know the answers, go back to the Word of God. It's not about what we've always believed. That's not what's important. It's not about what people are telling us today. That's not important. What is important is the unchanging standard of God's Word, and what does the Bible actually say? And then hold on to it, whether it's popular or not. And let me just start by saying, homosexuality is not a major theme of Scripture. It's not something that comes up over and over again, but it is mentioned several times. And every time, the answer is the same. It is clear. It is unequivocal. The clear unequivocal teaching of Scripture is that God created two genders, male and female, that God created the act of sex as a gift for two reasons. He gave that gift to humanity for two reasons. Number one, for the producing of more human life furthering generations, and secondly, as a source of pleasure that would bind a man and a woman together within marriage. The idea was that when a husband and wife come together and they've been exclusive with one another, that is something they share, that, that she knows, all that she knows is what I experience with him, and all that he knows is what I experience with her, and they don't have any comparisons to make. It's just, this is us, this is what we share, and no one else is part of this. And it binds us together. And if you don't believe that, the very first thing the Bible says about marriage is Genesis 2.24. Therefore, a man will leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Not one heart, not one soul, not one mind, one flesh. It's talking about that physical union of two bodies together that binds us as, as husband and wife. Uh, you know, read Proverbs where it tells men, you know, be be delighted with your wife. It, it, it says it in, in terms that I, I don't want to quote exactly because it would make us all embarrassed. Speaking of embarrassed, you ever read the Song of Solomon? That, that's, that's pretty steamy stuff. And that is a whole book of the Bible about the physical love of passionate love between a man and a woman within marriage. So that's God's standard. That's why God created sex. And the Bible would say that any any use of that gift outside of the purpose for which it was created is wrong, is harmful, is not good for us, is not good for society. And, and I know that, that people would say, well, where do you get that from the Bible? And, and I come to this today with the idea that most of us knew what I've said so far before you got here. So I don't necessarily have to defend that statement from the Scriptures. I can, but we've got other things to talk about. So if you're sitting there saying, I've never read that in the Bible, can you show me? Send me an email, send me a text, I will get you the list and we can talk it through. But I want to show you this one. I want to show you just one that talks about this issue because I think it's important and I'll tell you why. 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11. Paul is writing, he says, Or do you not know that the wrongdoer, that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. Now, let me ask you a question. I know we're not in English class. You may hate grammar, but... The word were, that is a verb. What tense is that in? Is that in the present tense? Is that in the future tense? That's in the past tense. That means something that was true but is no longer. It says, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Now, let me explain. When you look at this passage, taken out of context, let me give you the context. Paul, if you read the letters of Paul, you know he does this a lot. He'll sit and he'll he'll make lists. He'll say, okay, here's what happens if you decide to go your own way and you're no longer following the plan of God. These are the kinds of things that you'll see spring up in your life. And so he'll make these lists of sins. And he's not saying, this is a list of all the different ways you can mess up. He's not saying, these are the really, really bad sins. What he is doing is he's talking to a particular group of people. This little church in the town of Corinth, this Greek town of Corinth, people he knew well. And he's saying, I know you folks. I know the way you used to be. And before Christ came into your life, some of you used to get it, go out and get drunk all the time. Some of you used to be sexually immoral. You'd go out and hook up with people left and right. Some of you were greedy. You would sell your mother. You'd sell your child for an extra shekel. Some of you were homosexual. You, you lived the lifestyle where uh, two people of the same gender slept together. And that's what you used to be but now Christ has made you something new. Now, let me tell you what that doesn't say. He doesn't say that the the men who used to have sex with men, well, they no longer have that desire, that God changed their orientation. He doesn't say that. I can assume that they still had those desires, just like the alcoholics in the Corinthian church still had a desire to drink alcohol, just like the greedy people in the church at Corinth still would look at their neighbor's house and say, boy, I sure would like a house that size. But that greedy person would then say, yes, but you know what I want more? Jesus Christ and what He wants for me, His plan. I've decided that's better. And so I'm going to say no to that desire so I can say yes to Him because it's proven to be better for me. Now, what I've just said up to this point, I think you all know, puts me very out of step with broader culture. So I want to deal with some objections to what we're talking about here. All right? First objection. People will say, we need to be on the right side of history. We need to make sure we're not the ones left behind. The arc of history is bending this way. We need to be along that curve. And to that I would say... The Bible is very clear, and this is something I love, that the the Savior who died for our sins will someday be our king. He will rule this world. He'll come back and He will claim and redeem this world and rule it as, as, as its physical king. And that's our eternity. That's our heaven. So if that's true and that is the message of the Bible, then that means that whatever side Jesus is on is the right side of history. It's not the, the side that we think things are going, the, the, the way things are trending. It's the way things will end. I want to be on the side of Jesus, and Jesus was on the side of Scripture, and Scripture is clear and unequivocal. There's a second objection, and that is, well, why are you letting this two thousand year old book tell you how to live today? I mean, isn't that a rather primitive way to look at things? This is an ancient book, and we're we're enlightened today. Why don't we? Why don't we let our minds tell us what to do? And and First of all, if you think about it, if you really study it, the Bible was written in ancient times, but it wasn't an ancient text. What I mean by that is it didn't say the things that people thought back then. The Bible was just as radical 2,000 years ago as it is today. Secondly, The theme of this book, the main story of this book, this is not a book of rules, this is a story. The story is that God loves you and me so much that even though we personally, intentionally rebelled against Him and said, I don't want anything to do with you, and put ourselves into a position of death and destruction, he did not write us off. He did not say, you're you're getting what you deserve. He instead came on a suicide mission as a man named Jesus Christ laid down his life so that we, over his dead body, could cross the chasm between us and God and get back home. The story of Scripture is that God loves us so much he'd rather die for us than live without us. I like that story. I think that's a good story. And I don't think that I have the right... To say, well, I like that part of Scripture, but I don't like this part. I I like what it says about Jesus and and all that good stuff, but I don't don't like what it says about my personal lifestyle. So, yes, I I do think it's wise to let this 2,000-year-old book tell me, inform me how I should live. And a third objection is, well, why is this something God cares about? After all, we're talking about consenting adults. Why would God care that two consenting adults have found happiness together and they're finding pleasure in what they do? And, and I would say, if you believe what the Bible says, if you believe that, that God, number one, knows more about life than you and I do, and number two, loves us more than we love ourselves, then that means, in a lot of ways, we're like a little child, morally, spiritually, intellectually, And God's the adult. And can you think of times when you were a little kid and you didn't know right from wrong? And you didn't know why it was important to look both ways before you crossed the street? And you sure didn't know why it was important that you went to school and did your homework. But your parents knew. And now that you're older, you're like, yeah, I should have listened. See, if God knows more than we know about life and God loves us, then His commands are for our good. And this is the misunderstanding. And and I need to say this. If you're asleep, wake up. Wake your neighbor up, okay? Because this, this is something you need to hear. Because a lot of Christians get this wrong. We have this idea outside the church, and sadly, even inside the church, that, okay, well, here's what Christianity is. God gives us these rules, and God gives us these rituals to perform, and if you follow the rules, and you and you do the rituals, then someday when you die, God's gonna look down at his little checklist, and he's gonna say, okay, well, you did pretty good, come on in. So, so basically, God's commands under that thinking, God's commands are God sitting up there saying, okay, how can I make life really hard? How can I create a bunch of really tough rules so that only the really, really good people can follow them, so I weed out the bad people and get in the good people, and they can go to heaven. That's literally what most people think Christianity is, even people who've been in church their whole lives. And there's preachers that need to be shot because that's what Christians believe. And I just described human religion, all religion. That's the message of all religion. God's up here, we're down here, here's the path to get there. The message of Jesus is completely different. The message of Jesus says, it doesn't matter what you do. You can never earn salvation. You can go to church every time the doors are open. You can tithe 90% instead of 10%. You can, you can memorize the Bible from Genesis to Revelation and live it out better than any human being who's ever lived other than Jesus himself. And it won't be enough. You can become a martyr for the faith. And it's not like God's going to say, oh, well, I'm really impressed now. Because it's not what we do. All our righteous acts are as filthy rags in His sight, says the prophet Isaiah. It's not what we do. It's what He has already done. So if that's the truth, and it is, then why are there commands at all? Well, because God knows more about life than we do, and He loves us enough to tell us the truth. Because he wants us to live the right kind of life. He wants to spare us pain. And he wants us to live the kind of lives that show the world around us there's something distinct about those people who've been adopted into God's family. And maybe I want to do that too. And just kind of a silly illustration. Some of you may have noticed I like wearing cowboy boots. And it's not because I'm a cowboy. I am definitely, you can't see them because of the monitors, but I am definitely not a cowboy. A cowboy. I am so not a cowboy. I, I grew up in the country, but I can't remember the last time I was on a horse. True story, the last time I helped my dad with the cows at home, I got run over. Right? I wouldn't even make a good rodeo clown, much less the cowboy. So it's not about that. I just like the way they look. I like how, quite frankly, they make me about a half inch taller than usual. Can we be honest? I, I like them. But there are some things that boots are not good for. Boots are not really the best shoes to wear when you run. I had somebody after the first service say, hey, let a bull chase you, you'll run. I'm like, yeah, but I'm not running a 5K in cowboy boots because I like running too. Um, once or twice a week, I go out and go for a jog, clears my head, I pray better when I run. If you pass me and I'm running, I'm not talking to myself, I'm praying, don't, don't think I'm nuts. does keep people away, but that's good. But anyway, I... I like to run, but I don't run in boots. Now, what if I decided I wanted to run in my boots? I could do it. Absolutely, I could do it. Would it be good for me? No. It would wreck my feet and my knees and my back. Maybe I decide, though. I'm going to do it. I don't care what anybody says. I want to run in my boots. And you see me running down the street on a 5K in my boots. I'm going to cripple myself because I'm using them for something they were not built for. God knows what we were built for. God knows what he created sex for. And when we use his gifts in a way that he did not intend, there are consequences to that. And God is trying to spare us those consequences. It's not like God's up there saying, I don't like it when men have sex with men, so I'm going to punish them. It's that God knows that's not good for us to do. And he's trying to spare us. And somebody would say a fourth objection. Well, well, what right do you have to tell anyone who they can or cannot love? Listen to me. I don't have the right. That's not my job. And if you don't hear anything else, I say, Christian, hear this. Our job is not to be the moral policeman of society. We've taken on that role quite often. But that's not our job. There were moral policemen in Jesus' day. You may recall they and Jesus didn't get along all that well. So... Here's what I want you to hear, Christian. Our job is not to reform the behavior of non-Christians. Our job is to introduce them to Jesus. You get the impression sometimes, the way we talk, that we'd be perfectly fine if no one was a Christian as long as they acted like Christians. You know, if they would just act like good Christians, we'd leave them alone. That's not our job. So I don't walk down the street looking for people of the same gender in a relationship so I can go up and confront them any more than I go up to someone who's smoking and slap the cigarette out of their hand any more than I stand at the ATM and say to somebody who's driving a nice car so what are you going to use that money for you money grubbing buzzard I am not in the role of moral policeman and when I take on that role I've abdicated my responsibility my responsibility is to be a missionary for Christ and that's your responsibility too and here's the good news when you get beyond your own ego and your desire to for everybody to live the way you want them to because it makes you feel better. And when you focus instead on their, their eternal soul. Guess what? When you introduce someone to Jesus Christ, one of the first things he does is start to work on their lifestyle. Start to change their character just like he's doing to me right now. Just like he's doing to you. And then fifth and finally, there's, there's the objection that would say, well, isn't it heartless for you? I mean, you're, you're married, obviously, you married a woman who makes you very happy. Isn't it heartless for you to deny certain people that same right? And I get that objection. Emotionally speaking, I get that. But I would also say that it spotlights something that has happened in our culture that is wrong, and we need to call it wrong. Our, our culture has taken a gift that God gave us, sex, which is a good thing, and we have elevated it into an ultimate thing. Tim Keller would say, what is idolatry? It's taking a good thing and making it ultimate. And we've decided that if you're an adult, or well, some people would even say a teenager, they would say, if you, if you, are, if you, if you can't have sexual fulfillment, you're not complete as a person. If you cannot experience that in a satisfying way for you, then you need to go get it. And if someone stands in the way of you getting it, getting what you're looking for, that person is an enemy. And if that person is God, then God is your enemy because what you need to be happy is to be sexually fulfilled. And over against that, we get the teaching of Scripture, which gives us a virtue called chastity. Now, we hear the word chastity and we hear celibacy, but those are two different things. Chastity comes out of the Middle Ages and Christianity. It's this idea from Scripture that we are to take our sexuality, that part of ourselves that says, I find other people attractive. Certain other people are attractive to me. We take that, and when we become Christians, we give that over to God. We say, I'm offering this to you, just like I offer you my money and my thought life and my words and my actions. I give that to you, and I say, Lord, I will never use this in a way that doesn't glorify you. I will never use this in a way that hurts you or that gives people the wrong idea about you. This is yours. And here's the cool thing about chastity. Whereas our culture enslaves us to think we have to have, we have to have fulfilling sex all the time, or else we can't be happy. Chastity gives us this view that says, Jesus is enough for me. And, and if I'm married, Hallelujah, I'm gonna love her in the name of Christ, and I'm gonna be faithful to her, and I'm gonna be free from this idea that I have to judge uh, other women by their physical attractiveness, and I'm gonna treat my wife as the person she is, a person who I respect and love, who God created in His image, and who has a fantastic, amazing, world-changing purpose in His plan, not some object for my use. And if I'm single, I have the knowledge of saying, I don't have to be married. I don't have to be having sex in order to be complete. I am a complete person as I am. I am joyful. I am happy. I am expressing my faith in Christ. I'm able to do things my married friends can't do because they're tied down to a a spouse and kids. I've I've got freedom to do all this other stuff. And I look at women of the opposite gender and I'm, I'm able to treat them with respect And equality, because there's not all this weirdness between us, because I'm not going down the line and saying, okay, are you a good partner for me? Are you somebody who I can use for my purposes? The freedom that comes from chastity is amazing, and it's what the world needs to see. There would be no Me Too movement if people lived this way. There'd be no need for it. So that's biblical truth, and that's what we need to seek and hold on to. The world hasn't seen this from us. All right, so if you're a Bible-believing Christian and so far you're like, yeah, yeah, I'm with you, brother, it gets worse, okay? You ready? Second point, communicate biblical truth in a redemptive way. Can we be honest? This is the part we've not done well on. As evangelical believers, we have blown it in this. The church has often done a terrible job representing Christ, on this issue, there are so many examples I could give. Let me just tell you this Dave Kinneman, a Christian pollster, he works for George Barna, you may have heard that name. They surveyed young adults, millennials, who've grown up in church. Now that they're in their 20s and 30s, they don't go to church anymore. Most of them still believe in God, still believe in Jesus, still pray. They just don't want to have anything to do with church and they're getting down to the bottom of okay what what was it about church that turned you off and there are several things but one of the main things one of the consistent things they said was well because Christians hate homosexuals and and I've got friends who are homosexual I've got I've got family I how can you how can you be so hateful and that ought to grieve us as believers in Christ why why is there a huge section of our country of our culture that thinks that Christians hate homosexual men and women. And therefore, God hates homosexual men and women. Well, I think I have an idea why. Second Timothy 2, 24 through 25. That's our second scripture. Second Timothy 2, 24 through 25, Paul writes and says, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. So if you know Paul, if you know Paul's writings, you know that he was a hardline guy. He was not a compromiser in any way. He didn't mind saying things that would get him stoned to death. He was one of those guys. If he's the only guy saying it, he'd still say it. And Timothy, on the other hand, if you read First and Second Timothy, you get the impression that Timothy was, you know, he's this younger preacher. You get the, the idea he's more of a nice, polite guy who didn't want to step on people's toes because Paul is always saying to him, hey, you need to be bold. God has not given you a spirit of fear. Hey, don't let these false teachers in your church run unhindered. You need to oppose them. You need to expose them. So right here, when Paul's writing to Timothy and saying, okay, when you're preaching, there's going to be people who oppose you sometimes, you might expect Paul to say, so blast them out of the water. Use the word of God to show them what liars they are. Call them heretics. Run them out of the church. But no, what does he say? He says, instruct them gently. Because the goal is that they will come to repentance. That they'll be persuaded. So they'll come to the truth. What Paul is saying is, it's not about winning the argument. It's about winning the person. Do you see the difference? You can win the argument because you're louder or because you're more articulate or because you've thought through your your argument better. You can win a debate and lose the person. Folks, if you want to know why people think the church hates homosexuals, I think it's because somewhere along the lines we stop trying to win those people and start focusing on winning the argument we got all hot and bothered about well we we can't let these people have their way we we've got to stand up for truth we've got to tell we got to tell people what's true about this we've got to we've got to call sin sin and we forgot there are men and women who Jesus loves who God created in his image who God wants to come home And we're not even trying to win them. All we're worried about is winning an argument. You want to hear a tragic irony? We lost the argument. In the eyes of culture, we've lost the argument. And we've lost the people too. I'm sorry, I I don't have good news for you here. And I'm going to say something even more painful. We're going to do a little history here. Some of you are old enough to remember the mid-80s. You ever owned a members-only jacket? You know what I'm talking about, right? The mid-80s, early to mid-80s, when AIDS was first in the news. All we knew was there's this terrible disease where all of a sudden you have no more immunity and you die from a simple cold or fever or pneumonia. Young people dying left and right. No one knows how it's passed. No one knows how to cure it. All we knew was the main people who seemed to get it were IV drug users and homosexuals. And people were terrified. I mean, if you weren't alive then, you would not understand the hysteria. When I was a teenager, there was a little boy in my hometown. He was the younger brother of one of my classmates. And there was a rumor that he had AIDS. It wasn't true. But you know the kinds of rumors that get started in schools among kids. This little boy came to the city pool one day. And mothers were yanking their kids out of the water. Thinking, well, maybe it's passed through water. There was that kind of hysteria. Now, how did Christians respond to this in the early 80s? Sad to say, we responded like everybody else. We were just as scared. We were just as as desiring to get away from people who had this illness. There were even some Christians, not most Christians, but some Christians who said, well, they deserve this. This is the the result of their own sin. They're paying the consequences. God is doing this to to punish them for their sin, which was a terrible thing to say because first of all, we found out later, lots of other people can get it. Second of all, if God wants to punish people and kill people when they sin, we'd all be dead. Third of all, there there were children, even back then, who had AIDS because their mom had it and it passed along to them. Is, Is it that's child's fault? So terrible things were said, and and most Christians didn't agree with it, but we didn't speak out against it either. I want you to go back in your mind, I want you to think to yourself, what if, what if in the early 80s when this first came out and everybody was so terrified? What if, what if Christians had been the only ones who stood up and said, We're gonna love these people? They're our neighbors and they're dying. And we're gonna be there for them. What if what if churches would find out there's someone in our neighborhood who has AIDS? Well, let's Let's visit them. Let's drive them to their doctor's appointment. Let's be the ones who pray for them and pray with them when they're, when they're scared. Let's be the ones who lay the cold washcloth on their forehead when they've got a fever. Let's be the ones who hold their hand as they die. Would that have made us a little socially ostracized at the time? Yes. Would that have been scary because we didn't know how the disease was passed? Absolutely. Would history be different? Would our country today be different? Would our outreach to men and women who are homosexual be different today? You better believe it would. And it happened once before in history, you may know this, but in the early days of the church when Christianity was a tiny minority of this vast Roman empire and they were it was mostly slaves and poor people and, and, and so it was very, very much despised and often persecuted. But every time there was an epidemic and the people would flee the cities because they didn't know how disease was passed then, they just knew that if you stayed in the city you were probably gonna die. According to Rodney Stark, the sociologist, he wrote his book, The Triumph of Christianity, trying to figure out how did this tiny minority religion that preached, of all things, a crucified Messiah, how did this tiny foreign religion overtake the Roman Empire? And he said it was because in those days the Christians would stick around. When the epidemic spread, they would go house to house and they would tend to the sick. And some of them died, and they were like, hey, this is okay. If we die, we go to a much better place. And if we stay, we get to serve Christ for as long as we're here. So either way, we win. And the Romans couldn't figure it out. And finally, they're like, I I want some of what they have. I can't explain it. Their God must be real. And we missed a chance to do that same thing 40 years ago. But all is not lost. Because the gospel is still true. And the gospel is still the best news anybody's ever heard. And one of these days, I truly believe, when revival hits the churches again, we're going to get out of our own way, and we're going to stop being stuck on ourselves, and we're going to actually start communicating the gospel effectively again, and people are going to come to Christ, and there's going to be another great awakening because the world just can't resist the gospel. So, in conclusion... Let me just address three groups of people. There's three particular kinds of people I need to make sure I say something to before we're done. And that, the first is the person who says, listen, I, maybe nobody else in this room knows this, but I I struggle with this issue. I feel attracted to people of my gender. And I, I just, how does God feel about me? That's simple. He loves you. He loves you. He loves me. He loves every broken person. And make no mistake, we're all broken. And salvation is us coming to God and saying, I'm broken and I can't fix myself. I've tried. I can't do it. Please, Lord Jesus, by your grace, fix me. And he begins that incredible work of salvation, of putting us back together again. And you might be saying, well, that's fine. That sounds good from a spiritual sense. But you're telling me that if I follow the path of Christ, I can't ever be married to someone I'm attracted to. What am I supposed to do? And I'm sure there are people who would stand up and say, well, I read this story about this person who came to know Christ and they were gay and then God changed their orientation and they became, uh, they became attracted to people of the opposite gender and now they're married. And, and I've read those same stories too. And I believe that God is able to do that and maybe sometimes he does. I also know though that friends of mine who are Christian and who have same-sex attraction, God hasn't taken away that orientation. They've just decided to say, Lord, I believe your choice for me is better than my choice for me. I believe that my desire to serve you is better, leads to better outcomes than my following my desires in the sexual realm. And so I'm going to choose to follow you. Even if it means a life of celibacy, I'm going to find more fulfillment following you. And those are some of the most courageous people I know. And you might say, I just, I'm not sure I can accept that. Am I still welcome here if I can't accept that? Yes, you're welcome in this place. Everyone, regardless of what you've done or who you are, you're welcome to come and worship God, connect with God here. As a church family, once you join our church family, if you want to join this body, you're saying, I am committing to live according to the Scriptures. Please hold me accountable when I don't. But if you just want to come and worship as long as you want to, you are welcome here. Believe me. Second group of people are people who say, there's someone I care deeply about. My good friend, my coworker, my child, my sibling, my uncle that's gay, and I, I don't know, what should I do? How do I, as a Christian, respond to them? You love them. That's our job. Love them love them with the love of Christ. As Christians, our gay friends should see us as the people who love them in a way no one else does. And you might say, well, "But I want to I want them to change. You're not going to make them not gay." Okay? I'm sorry. And certainly not if you harp on them. I mean, let's let's make this personal. What if what if you or I were into gluttony. I'm, I'm not saying that's true of you. I'm saying it, you know, hypothetically. If you ate too much and you had a friend who—that's all he wanted to talk about—was so. What did you? You got enchiladas today. Shouldn't you have a salad instead? Tell me you didn't eat a donut at Life Group. You shouldn't eat donuts at all. You sh- you need to. You need to eat nothing but granola and yogurt. If would that be love? They might see it as love, but it wouldn't be. And you would cease to associate with that person. Love people love them and remember it's god who changes their lives not you it's not our job to change their behavior it's our job to introduce them to jesus and then he remakes them in his image just like he's doing with me and you there's one last group and that's people who say okay I get I get 2 Timothy 2, 24-25. I get that I'm supposed to be gentle toward people who I disagree with. I'm just telling you, Jeff, this issue makes me angry. This issue offends me deeply. I can't be gentle. It just stirs me up too much. And I would say to those of you who feel that way, you need to repent. You need to repent. Because James 1.20 says, man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. And you are not representing Christ well just because you believe the truth. You're not representing Him well until you love your neighbor. There's this saying that we like to say and have for a long time, especially in regarding this issue. Love the sinner, hate the sin. Anybody ever heard that one? Love the sinner, hate the sin? I think it's time to stop using that one. Not that it's wrong. Not, I mean, that's a great philosophy in theory. It's just that we haven't been doing it. We've done a great job of hating the sin. Everyone knows how we feel on this issue. I haven't done such a good job of loving the sinner. So let's stop saying love the sinner, hate the sin. Let's just work on loving the sinner. It would be good if we started hating our own sin. Let's love those around us. The whole reason we're saved is because Jesus saw us wallowing in sin, and he didn't say what they need is a good moral instruction guide. What they need is someone to show them the perfect way to live so they can follow my example. He said they need, they need a savior. It's gonna cost me everything, but that's how much they're worth to me. It is by grace we're saved through faith. This not of itself, of ourselves, it is the free gift of God. Not by works so that no one can boast. For you are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, for good works that He prepared ahead of time for you to do. And one of those works he prepared ahead of time is that neighbor who needs to know that what he's read in the newspaper about Christians is not true. But the love of Christ is something he's never experienced and can through you.